And whether this is your first time uh, or maybe the first time in a long time here at Plymouth Community Church, we're so excited uh, that you are here today. Now, the past few Sundays, we've been really uh, walking through the Ten Commandments and discovering that what took place at Mount Sinai was far more than a deity expressing a group of a set of rules to a group of people who followed him, but rather it was a ceremony of a marriage covenant taking place between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the people of Israel. Last week, uh, if you were here with us, we looked at a chiasm in Exodus chapter 6, and I'm not going to be there today, but I'm just putting the verses behind me so you can be reminded. We looked at this chiasm where we saw that the purpose that God had saved his people, he rescued them from Egypt, was a twofold purpose, because I will be your God and you will be my people. And in this, again, we see this picture, this marriage covenant that we've been talking about where he says, I will pledge myself to you and I want you to pledge yourself to me. And it's so important that we understand that this is not just God saying, I will for you. This is God also in return saying, and here's what I want or expect from you. You know, one-sided love is not the grounds for a good marriage. You know, when, when the husband says, well, I'll do this part, and the, woman's, the wife says, well, I'll do this part, you know, a marriage doesn't need 50-50 to add up to 100. A marriage needs both sides giving 100% of themselves. And yes, that sometimes may leave you feel a bit unfulfilled, but you didn't get married so you would feel fulfilled. You got married so you would help fulfill the needs of your spouse. But we have to understand, you know, at some point in a relationship, it's got to come alongside for both of them. And what God was saying to the nation of Israel at Sinai is, I'm going to give all of myself to you. And that's not an empty promise, right? Because it would be a long time, but we would see how God gave all of himself to his people. And it's pictured by that cross right there when Jesus said, I will give everything I have to give you. But then we get to see the flip side where Jesus also says, you cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross, you die daily, and you follow me, right? So it's, it's this, I will give all of myself to you and this desire for God to see his people give all of themselves back to him. You know, that means that our time of Christianity does not get scheduled from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. every Sunday morning. And there, there's some people, I don't think people in this room, of course, but there's some people who they went to church today so they could check the box so they could go back to living however they wanted to for the rest of the week. No, no, see, when we walk out of this room, well, we gather in this room because we're commanded to, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we're, we're commanded to come together as the body of Christ, but then we go out as the body of Christ and we continue to live for the purposes and desires of, of our King. And Jamie and I, we celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary on, on Thursday, and, and uh, we were talking recently with, with somebody about the early days of our marriage, and, and something came up, and she said this. She said, oh, that's when you had a temper. And I'm not proud of that, but I did. Man, when I was, when I was younger, I wanted things 
my way. And I felt like the way I could get things to be my way was to express that through anger. It's not like that anymore. But it's not because I woke up one day and said, I don't want to be an angry person anymore. I don't want to have a temper when I talk to my wife and my children. I never, I never had that conscious thought. All I did was simply get closer and closer and closer to Jesus and give more and more and more of myself to Jesus. And here's what happens. When you empty yourself out, he has room to fill you. Ha. Huh. Sometimes we try to force the change. No, you've got to get yourself out to give him room. See, I, I think if I lived apart from Jesus, and I don't mean I would not be a Christian. I just mean if I tried to do it my way apart from Jesus, I think I, think I could still be a married man, but an angry man. I think I would still come to church, but like it used to be, I would endure it not enjoy it. But everything changes. Well, because Jesus changes everything, right? It's a sign that's outside both of the doors that you walk in that Jesus changes everything. And so what that means is Jesus asks for all that we have because he wants to change all that we are. So in these first three commandments that we've walked through so far of the 10 words or of the 10 commands, we see that this is a fully committed relationship, not simply a way of how I expect you to behave. This is a relationship. And we see it in those first three commands, right? When, when, the, when Yahweh says, have no other gods, he's saying, I want to be your God. When he says, make no graven images, he's saying, I want to be your God. And last week we saw when he said, do not take my name in vain, he was saying, I want you to be my people. If you weren't here last week, we looked at this one command, do not take my name in vain. And we saw this means so much more than just don't curse by using the name of God. No, this, this is just as a child takes on the name of his family and just as a bride, Alicia, as you stood and took the name of your groom as yourself, you now walk with that name for the rest of your life. And Yahweh is saying to his people, if we're gonna be committed, I'll give all of myself to you. I want you to take my name and give all of yourself to me. We saw last week that this revealed name is of God is, is the I am, or four Hebrew consonants, Yahweh, which in English is Yahweh. And I would encourage you so much, whenever you come across the word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, think Yahweh. It means so much more. It's, it's like instead of calling your, your wife by her name, you would say, hey, wife, here. Hey, wife, will you? Husband, I just want to talk to you. No, no, no. Lord is a title. His name is Yahweh. But Jesus also claimed the divine name of I am. And if Yahweh is the I am, and if Jesus is the I am, then we saw last week that Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. And this makes the command, do not take the name of your God in vain, relevant not just for a group of Israelites thousands and thousands of years ago. It makes it very relevant for us today. Do not take the name Christ in vain. 
do not call yourself a Christian. Do not claim to be a part of the body of Christ and live as if there are other loves in your life that are far greater than Jesus himself. We must bear the name of our groom faithfully. You probably all heard of weird stories of marriages that didn't last very long. I remember reading of one of a, of, a, of a bride who was already having an affair with her groom's brother. And that had been going on for a long time prior to the wedding ceremony, which means she stood up there and made vows to her groom that she was not keeping and that she was not intending to keep, which means the vows that she made to him were worthless. I spent, I spent many, many years of my life meeting people on the street or knocking on a door and asking this question. If you were to die today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And if they said no, I would say, well, would you like to know how one day you can go to heaven and it doesn't cost you anything? It's a free gift. Oh, and people are like, yeah, I'd love to know about this. And I could tell you, and I'm not in any way trying to brag. I'm actually a little bit, like, I cringe when I say this. I've, I've led hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people through a sinner's prayer where they said, dear Jesus, come into my heart and take me to heaven when I die. Forgive me, but in most of those cases, those were worthless words because they wanted it wasn't as if they wanted Jesus they just didn't want hell and if it was free and didn't cost me anything man this is a great sure you want me to say some words you want me to pray a prayer I'll do that but listen listen when we commit our lives to Jesus we are committing our lives to the king to say I will go, be, and do anything you ask. And heaven, as we said a few weeks ago, heaven is only heaven because that's where Jesus is. It's not because there's golden streets and mansions and pearly gates. You can take all that, and if Jesus isn't there, that would be hell. So we have to understand, as we follow the king, our commitment is to whatever he asks us to do. Eternal life is not going to heaven when you die. Again, we've dumbed that down in Christianity. The eternal life being I go to heaven when I die. But those are not the words of Jesus. In chapter, John chapter 17, verse number 3, Jesus says as he's praying to the Father, this is eternal life that they know you. Now, do you remember what was said in Exodus chapter 6? I want you to be my people. I want you. I want to be your God so you will know me. That's what he was calling them to. He was calling them in Exodus 6 to eternal life, a relationship with God Almighty. And to those who pledge their lives to him, they bear his name. I closed last week by Mentioning that the name of God, it continues to make appearances all throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the Gospels and then even into the book of Revelation. 
Today, I want to highlight a few of these areas, and, and, and I want to be the kind of shepherd that I believe the Lord has called me to be, which is, you know, when, when, when Jesus tells Peter in John chapter 21, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, you know, what a shepherd does is a shepherd does not go to pick up the grass and walk it to the sheep and put it in its mouth. And that's what a lot of Christians want. They want someone who will go pick everything up, even put it in their mouth, chew it for them, and then stick it in their, stick it in their mouth so that it's easy for them to swallow. Listen, a good shepherd, he leads his flock to some green grass and says, have at it. You know what I want to do today? I want to lead you to some green grass. And this week, say, have at it. That green grass is the name of God. I would love it, love it, if you would spend some time this week with a, with a concordance on your computer or somewhere and just, just trail the name of God throughout the Bible. I think it would be so crazy changing your life. It'd be awesome. I want to show you that in Exodus chapter number six, Forgive me. In Exodus chapter number six, we saw what God wanted. In Exodus chapter 20, he begins to give the covenant. And, and, and he, here's what I want you to know. Right after God gives the Ten Commandments, he starts to explain and give Moses the instructions to the tabernacle. Now, if you've ever started reading your Bible at the beginning of a year or, or the beginning of a Bible plan, I'm going to tell you something. It's a really cool and interesting read until you get to Exodus chapter 20 halfway through. Because it is story after story after story. It is person after person. Even when you get to Exodus, you got these 10 plagues. you got the, the parting of the Red Sea. You have, you have a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. You have manna falling from the sky. You have water coming from a rock. You have this marriage ceremony that takes place at Mount Sinai, and then it's like it comes to a screeching halt, and the most boring text begins. Hey, let's talk about materials and measurements. And if you didn't have a good cup of coffee that morning, and you start reading about the tabernacle, you're just kind of like, what is this? You're like, what? Why in the world do we go from having all the excitement that we read in the scriptures to this boring passage? But here's the thing. Remember, Yahweh and his people just made a covenant commitment to one another. Where are they going to live? And that is exactly what Yahweh begins to tell Moses. I want you to create this tabernacle where, where I can, as Exodus 25 says where I can dwell in their midst, right? I mean, how crazy would it be? Forgive me, Noah and Alicia, for picking on you, but you just got married, and so this is like so perfect. How crazy would it be if you got married and you committed your vows and then you went to separate homes? Like that, no, the whole point is because we want to bring our lives together. And so Yahweh and Israel, they committed their lives to one another. And now Yahweh says, I want to live with you. And he begins to build, and Moses begins to build this tabernacle. And before the end of Exodus, before they leave Mount Sinai, the tabernacle is in, it was built. The final chapter of Exodus, chapter number 40. I'm going to skip around a little bit just so you know, but if you want to follow me, that's totally fine. In Exodus chapter number 40, Ah, oh, they're done with the tabernacle where the God wanted to dwell. And it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory. Oh, you got you to fig figure this or you got to picture this. The glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Whew. Whew. 
What must that have been like? But the crazy thing about the tabernacle is it had to be portable. It had to be movable. Because, you know, they were going to spend a long time preparing to get to the promised land. They didn't know initially, but God did. He knew it would be 40 years. And so they had to regularly take that tabernacle apart, put it back together. The glory of the Lord in that tabernacle. Wow. Eventually they get to the promised land. And hundreds of years after the promised land, that tabernacle sat in a place called Shiloh. It was so cool. I got to visit Shiloh in March when I went to the holy land. It was the coolest thing. I went and stood right where they say the holy of holies was. That's where the glory of God rested. King David, while contemplating one day, he asked this question, why do I dwell in a house of cedar and the glory of our God dwells in tents? I'm going to build a house for him. And God comes to David and said, you won't, but your son Solomon will. And here's what Yahweh said to David. He shall build a house, notice this, for my name. I thought it was a place for sacrifices. I thought it was a place where all this tabernacle work was done. But no, Yahweh says this temple that Solomon is going to build, it's going to, be, it's going to be built and it's going to be for my name. And after Solomon got finished, here's the coolest thing. Just as happened when the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle, we read, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. Oh, man, this is, this is so good. Like, so the tabernacle is filled with his glory. Now the temple is filled with his glory. The temple that bore his name. And guess who took care of the sacrifices? These guys named priests. You may or may not know this. Did you know that the high priest wore, he bore the name of Yahweh on his forehead? Here's what we read in 2 Chronicles uh, sorry, here, here's what we read in Exodus as, as the Lord is giving instructions to Moses. He says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to Yahweh. That, that means the high priest would walk around and on his forehead it says, I'm committed, I am holy, I am set apart for Yahweh. A mark on the forehead? Boy, that's talked about a lot nowadays. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But here's the thing. It wasn't just the high priest who bore the name. Remember, in Exodus 19, Yahweh called Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those, those words are important. Don't forget it. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is why they were instructed, you, hey, the whole people, everyone, do not carry, do not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. Oh, it's so cool. Every Israelite had the name Yahweh as they walked and carried into the world around them. But if you know the story of Israel, it's a tragic story that goes throughout the Old Testament. And it takes hundreds of years to play out, but they turn very rebellious. 
They would not be faithful to carry the name of Yahweh throughout the world. And as a result, they would face divine judgment. If you were to skip in your Bibles, and you don't need to, but if you want to, you're welcome to. If you were to skip in your Bibles all the way to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is this prophet who who comes and he he looks at Israel after they have lived a very rebellious time and he has watched his armies from Nebuchadnezzar come into Israel and they begin to devastate the land. And this is what God tells the people through the prophet Ezekiel's mouth. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that the people said of them, meaning the nations around them, these are the people of Yahweh. We know who they are. They're the people of Yahweh. And yet they had to go out of his land. The people recognized this was a land prepared for them and they had to leave the land. But I, the Lord says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came Therefore, say to the house of Israel, he's telling Ezekiel, preach this, thus says Yahweh God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you The rebellion of Yahweh's people forced them out of the land Yahweh had prepared for them. Whoa, hey, we got to pause. Push that that little pause button because you know what this does? This connects us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible when the rebellion of God's people forced them out of the land that God had prepared for them. Adam and Eve. Rebellious. Kicked out of the land. Israel, rebellious, kicked out of the land, which then leads us to ask this question, like, who is this God? What's his problem? Just because people don't do things his way, does he just discard them? Oh, that's why we have the rest of the Bible. We just got to keep reading to see who he is. But here's the thing. Ezekiel doesn't just tell the people how God feels. You've profaned my name. He tells them what God does. And this is wild. Remember how he talked about the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling the temple? Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving. It kind of happened in stages beginning in chapter 9. But in chapter 11, this is how it ended. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city. Picture this. The cloud of glory that was in the temple for all those years as Ezekiel watches The people have turned to such rebellion that the glory of Yahweh, he leaves the temple, he stands at the threshold, and he leaves on wheels led by cherubim, and he begins to hover over the city and then leaves the city to go to the mountain on the east side of the city, the Mount of Olives. The temple still stood. The priests still worked for a short time, but the glory was gone. 
It reminds me, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Universal Studios Hollywood. There's a street down there, it's so cool, where they have recreated like the, the, the openings or the, the, uh, the houses and the storefronts of all these things that they've made in movies. It's so cool when you're looking at it, but as soon as they turn the corner and you look behind it, you realize it's just a facade. There's nothing in there. They take you on the tour and they take you through all these houses that they use uh, to make different movies and TV shows. And every one of them, you could see the houses there, but there's really nothing that functions inside. It was just for show. And this is what happens to the temple that the glory of the Lord had gone into, that the name of God was attached to, but the glory had left. And if the glory leaves, so does the name. So what happens? What happens to the name? What happens to the temple? Well, if you keep reading, a man named Ezra and a man named Nehemiah, they write about the temple being rebuilt and the priests being brought back in and the sacrifices being started again. But there's a glaring omission. In this rebuilt temple, the glory of the Lord never comes back. Ezra and Nehemiah work hard to rebuild the walls and the temple. And for hundreds of years, 400 years, the temple work continued and there was no glory. So what of the name of God had he abandoned his people? It sure looked like it. Until one night, over the skies of Bethlehem, angels appeared, and the gospel writer says, and the glory, <laughs> that's what we were waiting for, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And this child that was born to Mary was given the name Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua. And Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. So you know the glory of the Lord has come back and the name of the Lord is here again and it's in the person of Jesus. And the apostle John writes in chapter number one as he introduces us to who this person was. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and this word he was God, and the word became flesh and, yes, he's back. He's back. The glory is back. Ha, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Yes, God had not abandoned his people. No, the glory of God had returned to dwell among his people. When John wrote his glory dwelt among us, it literally is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. The glory was gone, but the glory is back in the person of Jesus Christ, remember, Jesus claimed the divine name in his ministry. He was the I am the glory's back. The name is back. Yes. And if we were to jump to the end of Jesus' ministry, oh, on Palm Sunday, 
he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and guess where he's coming from? The Mount of Olives. The glory of the Lord that had gone to the Mount of Olives, the glory of the Lord was coming down the Mount of Olives, and guess where Jesus was going? To the temple. Ha! The glory of the Lord was going back to the temple. And along the way, the people laid palm leaves and coats and they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, this is it. When the, when the priests heard the people yelling that, they knew what they were saying, and they're like, hey, you can't say that. And Jesus said to them, oh, if they don't shout, the stones themselves will begin to cry out. Like, like what is we talking about? Hey, even creation. You know how creation, Romans 8 says it groans? Oh, creation was aware. Our creator, the very glory, he's coming back to the temple. But Jesus gets to the temple. And what does he see? He ascends the steps, those stone steps, and he sees the priests and the money changers taking advantage of the people, and he kicks them out of the temple. And days later, on this last week of his life, he sits with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he points at the very temple and says, soon this building will be gone. No stone will stand on top of another. And they can't believe it. But sure enough, about 40 years later, the Roman armies come and they storm Jerusalem and they take this massive temple that was built by Herod and they throw it down and there is not a stone on top of others. Hmm. What happened? And what do we do now about the glory of God? He was making his way to the temple. What do we do about the name of God? I mean, the name of God was on Jesus, and, and he was on his way to the temple. Remember how we said that Jesus changes everything? He does. Because Jesus had come to change things. He had come to change the temple. He had come to change the sacrifices. He had come to change everything. You see, Jesus did not come to restore the glory of God to their temple. Jesus came to reveal he was the temple filled with the glory of God. You say, I don't understand that, Brian. Yeah, the temple. The temple is where, it's where God meets man the temple is where heaven meets earth. Who was Jesus? Jesus was God. And Jesus was man. Jesus was divine. And Jesus was human. And Jesus comes as the temple of God. And he bears the name of God, which tells us Jesus is the temple. In fact, that 
explains so much about why when Jesus dies, what happens in that stone temple? Do you remember reading that when Jesus takes his last breath, the veil in the temple that separated the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God once rested That veil was ripped from top to bottom, and people say it was ripped from top to bottom because God himself did it. And I love the truth that when God ripped that veil, he was showing that what Jesus did on the cross was that Jesus was making a way for direct access to the Father. No priest would ever need to go on my behalf, and I love that, and we should celebrate that. But may I ask you to consider what if that veil was also ripped? so that everybody could see there's nothing behind the curtain. The glory was gone from the temple because there was a new temple and you just crucified that temple. Oh, but that temple didn't go away for long. That temple three days later came back to prove, yes, I bore the name of God. And yes, I am where God meets man. I am the God of life. And Jesus proved that he was God by resurrecting from the dead. And 40 days later, ascending back to heaven. Oh yeah, see, Jesus came to change everything. And here's why this is such good news. We can't miss this. I'm sorry. Here's why this is it. Sorry, I'm totally missed. I missed the statement. Let me just make this, let me share this with you. Because of Jesus, the glory of God was not, rest, was not returned to rest behind a curtain in Jerusalem. This is good news. We don't want the glory of God behind a curtain in Jerusalem. If it was, we'd have to go to Jerusalem to be near the glory of God. That's why Israel had to go have those feasts. They had to go where the glory of God was. And Jesus did not come to return the glory of God behind a curtain in Jerusalem. He had come to unleash the glory of God to the ends of the world. Oh, this is such good news. And he has come to lay the foundation for a new temple. A new temple. Where the glory of God would dwell and where the name of God would be found. But this temple would not be confined to a geographic location because this temple was not made with limestone. This temple was made with living stones. And Jesus was creating a way for people to worship Yahweh everywhere and anywhere. And he does this in John chapter 14 behind me where he says, I am going to send the spirit and the spirit will dwell in you. He's telling his disciples this. You know what that means? That means if you are a disciple, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you. It should blow your mind. And we saw the Spirit of God. They saw the Spirit of God fill the tabernacle. They saw the Spirit of God fill the temple. And we have the Spirit of God move in us when we place our entire faith and trust in Jesus. And then in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, Father, as you are in me and I 
in you, that they also may be in us. We have Jesus, we have the Father, we have the Spirit in us. <laughs> and the glory, Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, that you have given me, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, <laughs> I have given to them. Wow! You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the glory of God in you. Do you know what that makes you? The Apostle Paul says it most clearly. Because Jesus changes everything, today you are the temple of God. Are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? We, we are now the temple of God. Wow. So we got the, we have the presence and we have the glory, but what about the name? We need the name. Well, you keep reading, right? In Ephesians 1.13, sorry, Paul says this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Hmm. When we say sealed, you know what we often think of as an envelope where we could seal it and it keeps something from coming out. And that's so true. And that is a role that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. He seals us. He keeps us. But we have to go back to the context and culture of when this was written. They didn't have envelopes that they licked and sealed. No, no. What they would have had was authorities would have worn a ring and that ring would have contained a seal and that seal would be planted on anything that they wanted to show this is under my authority or this is in my possession. And what the Spirit of God does is he brings to us the name of Yahweh and says, I seal you with the name as being under the authority of and in the possession of Yahweh. It means every believer is marked. You're marked with the name of God. You bear the divine name, whether you want to say Yahweh or Jesus, they are both the I am. You carry the divine name, so please do not carry it in vain. And what I think is just so amazingly cool is the Apostle Peter, he takes those words, remember we said a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, that's what, that's what Yahweh called Israel. Peter takes those names and he gathers them. And as he pens the letter, the apostle Peter says to Gentiles everywhere, to believers everywhere, you as believers, you are now a holy nation. You are a believer. You are a kingdom of priests. We are the temple. We are marked just like the Old Testament priests bore the name of Yahweh on their forehead, we bear the name of Jesus on our body. And here's the good news. Once we are marked with the name of Yahweh through the seal of the Holy Spirit, we cannot be marked by any other name in any other way, including 
the mark of the beast. I know some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. But I do not believe the mark of the beast is a physical microchip or tattoo or something physical that goes on or in our body. The mark of the beast is placed on those who refuse the mark of Yahweh by saying, no, I will not be under the authority of, I will not be under the possession, in the possession of Yahweh. I refuse, and when that happens, the beast marks, the mark of the beast is a spiritual mark that is upon those who say, I don't want to recognize who Jesus is. So we have this, we have this spiritual marking, but also, you know what? The, the Bible talks about a physical marking. If you've ever been baptized, do you know what was said when you were baptized? I baptize you in the... Yeah, but the word in is better to say into. That's the preposition that should be used based on the, the Greek. I baptize you into the name. That means, that means we spiritually are marked by the Spirit, and we are physically marked in front of the church as people who says, I am going to carry the name of Yahweh. And you understand what that means? It means, wow, we're the temple. Compare this, how Jesus changes everything. Remember Moses and Joshua, when they stood in the presence of God, they were told to take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. You know, the Holy Spirit seals believers with the name of God. He marks us to be under the authority and under the possession, which means, which means we are mobile temples. Taking the presence of God everywhere we go. Meaning we don't take our shoes off when we come into the presence of God because that's holy ground. Rather, everywhere your shoe touches this week is holy ground. Because Jesus changes everything. Because you have the presence of God in you. You have the name of God with you. The glory of God is in you. Wow. That's a pretty cool God you have, right? That he trusts us with this. Now, I'll tell you, there's a segment of Christianity who's waiting for a new temple to be built in Jerusalem where sacrifices will one day be, be offered again. Man, but when I read my Bible and I look at how Jesus changed everything, I have to ask if, if New Testament believers have been marked with the name of God and if Jesus already dwells among his people people with his spirit so the presence of God is there and we are actually called the temple of God why are we looking for another temple if the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself was the once and for all sacrifice why are we looking for another temple where sacrifices can be offered if Ephesians tells us that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sits on the throne and under his feet are every rule, every power, every dominion in the world, like what, 
What else are we waiting for? Oh, there's one thing that this pastor, and I understand this is, this is, this is my opinion, because I'm telling you that. I'm not saying that this is everyone's opinion. There's this, this pastor, there's one thing this pastor is looking for. The ultimate return of our king to redeem his world and his people from the, from the scars of sin. And I believe he's going to restore this world to the ultimate Eden, which is what he intended at the beginning in the Garden of Eden to say, I want to dwell in the midst of my people, but sin ruined it. And he's going to bring this Eden back and he is going to dwell with his people and we won't need a son because he is the son and we won't need a temple because he is the temple and, and we, we won't need bread because he's a tree of life. And we won't need water because he's a living water. We won't even need anything because Jesus is everything because Jesus changes everything. Man, I, I look at what's going on in the world around us. Here's my take. I believe God loves Israel and I'm praying for Israel. And I believe that the terrorism of, any, terrorism of any kind is condemned by God and will ultimately be judged by God. But is this the end of the world? Look, I know for certain that every generation since Jesus ascended to heaven has said, this is it. This is it. And guess what? Every generation has been wrong. If you, if you think that something bad happening to Israel, if that's the sign, then like, shouldn't have the Holocaust have been a really good picture? Yeah. So like, I want you to understand, I can't wait for Jesus to return. I cannot wait to meet the king. I can't, I can't wait for that. That's going to be so awesome. But do you want your pastor standing here and pointing to the actions of wicked evil men and warning you that because of what they're doing, the world may come to an end? Or, or do you want me to take my time when I stand in front of you and point to the actions of our good and perfect king who has changed everything for you and to stand here and encourage you today to live as a faith-filled believer who has been sealed by the Spirit and marked with the name of God? Like, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't want to talk about wicked, evil men. I want to talk about our good and gracious king. He's the one who changes everything. I really believe this, and just read social media, but there are far too many Christians who are concerned about the evil in the Middle East and unconcerned about the evil in their own hearts. If you bear the name of Yahweh, look in the mirror before you look in the newspaper. And we're the evil ones. And we need to find confession and repentance. And so, just in closing, I want to encourage you. Walk boldly this week. Walk boldly. Walk confidently. You have been marked. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to fear what's going on in the world. Listen, you are a marked believer. He has placed his seal on you. That means if he tells you to do something, if the Spirit speaks to you, obey. And I'd also encourage you, walk holy. Holy. Because you bear his name and you are to live as he asks you to. And next week, I hope to close our, our little series on the Ten Commandments. And, and, and because 
after these first three commands that says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people, we see how his people are supposed to walk. And then last, walk humbly. Because we have a God and you are not. We all have our opinions. We all have our thoughts. We all have our own ways of saying this or that. But ultimately, I love it. You know, I listen regularly to guys who debate theological things. And they all say the same thing. When we're on our way up, we'll all see the truth. We can argue as much as we want while we're here. When we're on our way up, we'll all see the truth. Walk humbly with your God. Would you pray with me?